So if you'll turn with me to Hosea chapter four, get started here. Um, we're going to do our best to finish this chapter. There's going to be some sections that seem as if we're moving quickly, but in reality, as you'll see, we, we covered those things uh, and we'll we'll, they will have been covered, uh, but from a just slightly different aspect. So we're, we're going to get through all of it today, I believe. But here in this chapter, we'll remember that God is laying out his case against Israel, and he continues to do so. Um, specifically, he singles out those who were in leadership in Israel, and ultimately those who are in that spiritual position of spiritual leadership, um, not the legitimate priesthood, but the priests nonetheless, those that are leading people to idolatry. He singles them out and, and gives some very specific and direct uh, consequences to them. And we also see that in this chapter, we see the connection between the people and that leadership and how that is affecting uh, their relationship with God. So I want to talk about those things this morning. But if we go click that for me. <laughs> uh, turn with me, as we said, he, uh, Hosea chapter 4. Let's read verse 1. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. No, not verse 1, verse 6. We did verse 1 last week. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. I want to talk about knowledge here for just a moment. Because in this, uh, we need some foundational understanding. When we talk about knowledge, we talk about it, we sort of understand it in the, in the context of what we know, what we uh, have stored away in our brains. Um, I like to joke that I have a limited amount of space, and whenever something goes in, probably something is going to have to go out. So I have to be very careful about what knowledge I might hold on to. But ultimately, from a biblical perspective, that isn't a very good definition or a very good understanding of knowledge. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. These are probably familiar to many of us, but in Proverbs chapter 1 and again in Proverbs chapter 9, we have a, uh, a different definition, a different understanding of what knowledge is, something more foundational. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, God says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And again, we have a very similar thing repeated in Proverbs chapter 9. In verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So from God's perspective, when we look at what knowledge is, it's something greater than the sum of facts that we might store away in our brain. Ultimately, it's an understanding. It's a thinking about the world biblically, the way that God thinks about it. That is knowledge. When we encounter this here, when we see that God's people are lost for lack of knowledge, it's really a statement about their willful rejection of God's revelation of himself in both creation and in his word. They're willfully ignoring and rejecting all that God has given them about himself, about how the world works. Here we are taking time in Sunday school to develop a worldview that is consistent with God's word. This morning, we kind of kicked off a chapter about politics. 
What does God say about governance and how we interact with government? What is the standard of government? All of those kinds of things. What does the Bible say about it? This is where Israel is at. They willfully rejected. They know what God has said. They're his people. Yet they've chosen to reject it. So this lack of knowledge. He talks about in that first verse, excuse me, verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There is a coming judgment as a result. And I want you to notice that as he talks about these judgments, as he talks about these consequences that are being doled out, they're given in the past tense, which gives us the idea and the understanding of the certainty of God's judgment. It's coming. It's, it's unavoidable at this point. And he's made that very clear in the first chapter of Hosea and in the second chapter of Hosea. This is coming. They've already, they're now going to read what they've shown, that his mercy has been removed, as it were, uh, they are going, no longer are they going to be dealt with that way. They're going to reap what they've sown, and God in his love for them is going to send this consequence. We spent some time talking about that. But people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. They choose to ignore it. They choose to operate without the fear of God. They choose to operate without the understanding of his word. He says to the priests, to those who would lead them, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. So God in here, here begins to lay out the case specifically, the people are perishing as a result, but they're perishing as a result. The, res the reason there is a lack of knowledge is because they are being led by these false priests to do so. And so he begins to talk about the priesthood here, and he spends several verses discussing this. And I want to first off look at the legitimate priests. So if you turn with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Just... Don't, Don't click, click on, on the first, first one, one. I'll move through the slides. Make sure it's on. Maybe, you know, could it be me? Leviticus chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. And that they may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken. Here we go. The Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. So here the Lord spake unto Moses, excuse me, unto Aaron, and that's where the priest, they're the legitimate priests in verse 8. Uh, he gives them some special instruction, and he tells them that they are to operate and conduct themselves in a particular way. And the reason that that standard is given, he says in verse 10, that you may put a difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. One of the things that he talks about is strong drink or, or alcohol. Uh, they're not supposed to eat to, to drink that when they go in the tabernacle of the congregation. Uh, it's going to be a statue forever throughout your generations. So the idea here is that they are separating themselves to the service of God. And the purpose is that they have a clear and explainable, presentable difference between what's holy and unholy. 
This is the, the legitimate priests are obviously the descendants of Aaron, the Levites, that tribe. God is tasked to be the, the, the priest. And they have a very specific purpose. He says that they may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Part of what the nation of Israel, uh, what the priesthood is supposed to do for the nation of Israel is to be those instructors of the law. That this is what God has said. This is how we're going to conduct ourselves. This is how we're going to operate. Yet we find that within Israel, within that nation, within that kingdom rather, They've rejected that. And at the very least, they've mixed that truth with untruth. They've syncretized it in practice. In Deuteronomy, if you'll turn there with me, Deuteronomy 33. Verse 10. Again, Again, speaking speaking of of Levi, the the tribe of Levi, the priests says, they shall teach Jacob thy judgments and Israel thy law. They shall put incense before thee and whole burnt sacrifices upon thine altar. They're tasked specifically with teaching people the word of God, both in example and in practice. This is their job. This is their task. So in many respects, we see that this is broken down. That these, these legitimate priests have fallen away. That they are largely non-existent here in Israel. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. Remember that uh, the kingdom split. Jeroboam is the first king of Israel, uh, which was by God's design. But he has this plan to establish these two idols, the golden calf, one in Dan, one in Bethel. And that becomes his mechanism of control. No longer are the the priests the the final authority, so to speak, in matters of judgment. He says, we're not going to go there anymore. We're not going to honor that authority. Uh, We talked about that last week. We're going to establish our own mechanism of worship. We're going to establish our own idols. We're going to walk in adultery to the Lord. And that's the whole premise of the first few chapters of Hosea. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 31, part of what he does, part of what Jeroboam the first does, and he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. So he establishes a different priesthood. Those who, and it says from the lowest of the people. Now that doesn't mean that they were the poorest necessarily, but what it means is they were the least capable. They were the least knowledgeable in the things of God, is the point. And specifically so, because there can't be any, anything coming in that would correct or change this method of idolatry that they were now going to found their country upon. So the, we have the, this priesthood that's been established at the very inception of the kingdom. We find that there is a uh, a worship and a synchronization of truth and pagan ideals. And we find that the people are led along those lines and are willingly rejecting the truth that they know to exist because they're being led to that conclusion by these false priests. As a, as a 
result of their rejection, God says, I will reject you. He's going to reject these priests. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This is a, I don't want to say a common thing, but this is something that happens more than once in scripture. And in Mark chapter 12, we find it again. Jesus is here speaking. He's confronting uh, the religious leaders of that day who are in many respects uh, making the law of God of no effect because of their traditions or teaching for the traditions of men rather than the laws of God. And that's what their pursuit is. Jesus addresses them in Mark chapter 12, verses one through nine. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and dig a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he went to the husbandmen, a servant that he had been received from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another. And him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also unto them, saying, They will receive my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. So think about this, right? We have these who are given the stewardship, the husbandmen, these farmers, are given the stewardship of this, vine, of this vineyard. And their job is to take care of it, to tend it, so that the fruits may be reaped, that the wine may be made. And when the owner of the field comes to collect what is his, each one of his representatives is killed or beaten or sent away empty-handed. And ultimately, finally, he sends his son, assuming that they will reverence him, that they will show him the same deference because of his relationship to the final authority, the owner, that they would have showed him. But in fact, we find that he had killed him. Now, now all of this is a picture of Israel. Here we have those who are left to be stewards of God's people. That they are to tend it, they are to care for it so that it may yield fruit. And ultimately, in the end, when God seeks to correct them, when he seeks to to deal with them, whether it's through the prophets or the priests, those are persecuted, beaten, or killed. And ultimately, what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, not assuming that he'll receive the same respect, but knowing that he won't. Knowing that they will be the very ones who will kill him, who will take his life. What does it say? That he removes the vineyard from him, he gives it to others. Now you remember that in, in Romans chapter 11, we had that entire discussion about blindness and part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come. And that all those, whether they're Jew or Gentile, that whether when they come by faith, they'll be grafted into the same stock. That's what's being talked about here. It's been removed from Israel in some respects so that it can be given to the Gentiles, those who will reverence and honor God, those who will be receptive to the principles of the gospel. And Jesus is here giving that parable. 
in Jesus's day, in Israel's day, we have the same thing happening. Here they are. They're supposed to be stewards. Those who are, they should be leading the people in truth. They should be holding them account for it. And ultimately there, we have these priests who have been established that are leading the people in error. It says that God's going to remove them. Turn with me to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we read the same parable, but it concludes, uh, in my opinion, somewhat more clearly. Matthew 21, I want to look at just verses 41 through 44. Again, it's the same parable, and Jesus says this. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and, let, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their season. Jesus concludes, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, listen, he's going to kill those who he's going to miserably destroy those wicked men. And he's going to give that vineyard to other farmers, to others who will give him what is due, who will render unto him the fruits in their season. Jesus says this in verse 42. Did ye never read in the scriptures? Right, so Jesus is now making a connection between those who are leading his people and this parable. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, the cornerstone being, being a very important part of the foundation construction. From that stone, every grade for the rest of that building was going to be laid out. And so they selected that stone very carefully. Here are the builders. They've rejected that stone, yet God himself places it to be the cornerstone. It is the standard by which everything else is measured. Here is the son being sent, and this is obviously talking about Jesus Christ. The son being sent. The builders, those husbandmen who are taking care of that, they've rejected it. Yet God is going to establish it. Therefore, he says in verse 43, say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, remember back in Hosea, the end of chapter two, he talks about, listen, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And we read in Romans chapter 11, we find that same verse, same passage quoted in reference to the Gentiles. You who were not a people are now my people. We find as we read through Scripture in the New Testament that we, the church, are become a nation. We are now a people when we weren't a people, First Peter. This is what's being discussed. Now, it's not to say that God has rejected Israel completely. We obviously know that through the history they're restored. We know that even in the Scripture that there is a restoration yet to come, and, and Hosea is full of that promise. He says this in verse 44, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomever this shall fall, it will grind him to powder. In other words, those who will submit to that stone, those who will yield to the standard of that cornerstone that God has established will be broken. They'll be uh, established in faith, as it were. But if the stone falls on you, we're going to conclude this morning talking about judgment. If the stone falls on you, that's it. So there's this lack of knowledge within Israel. There's this total willful rejection as a result of 
the false teachings that they are that they are aspiring to and that they are allowing. This lack of knowledge, and God says, "My people are destroyed as a result of that lack of knowledge." He goes on and he says in verse seven, "As they increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore, will I change their glory into shame? They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity." This is talking about those false priests again. As those priests increased, as the number of those priests increased, more and more they led the people towards sin. You remember in First Kings, First Kings chapter eighteen. Let's just turn there for a moment. This is a a little before Hosea's time, but First Kings chapter eighteen we encounter here. Uh, Elijah, and he's calling out the prophets of Baal. And he tells King Ahab, verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So we have these false prophets for for one God, for, for, for two idols alone, 850 false prophets, false priests. Right, those who would be in this position of leadership, this position of we have the truth, follow us. Now, there's some responsibility that falls upon the people. They have willingly accepted all of this as fact and as truth. They know better, but they willfully reject God. But we see the growing number, and therefore the, 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 the greater result that they have. These false priests have made the people their business. That's what the point of verse 8 is. Because as they eat up the sin of my people, they soothe their conscience, in other words, and they set their heart on their iniquity. They set their heart on their iniquity. They convince the people, right, if you all of a sudden have this ready market of people who will buy your stuff, who will do whatever they need to do as a result of, I have to now somehow appease this God, you're making money. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're capitalizing on the sins of the people. They're eating it up. They're consuming it. It is their profession, and it's extremely lucrative. It's not dissimilar to some that we find today. That people are preyed upon through false doctrine. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 2. God is here dealing with, <clears throat> with Eli. Now, we'll remember that Eli is a priest. He's a legitimate priest. But he's just a man like any other man, and he's subject to the same sinful nature that all men are subject to. And Eli's sons are also priests, and they have taken advantage of the people. In fact, if you go and read through what they are, what they are doing... They don't just take the part of the sacrifice that has been appointed to the Levites, that has been given. That's, that's how God provided for them. They didn't get an inheritance in the land. They didn't farm. They didn't raise animals. They were simply provided for through the sacrifices of the people. This is your portion as part of the priesthood. And they're taking advantage of that. When people would be bringing their sacrifice, they're, they're, they're not eating just the things that God prescribed for them to eat. They're taking the very best, and they're taking more than theirs. In fact, it talks about them going around with their, with their hooks, and they would put it into the pot, and whatever would come out would be theirs. 
them and they were robbing the people. They were abusing the position of authority that they had. And no one would say anything against it because here they are, they're the priests. And God confronts Eli about it through Samuel. And he says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27, beginning there, And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, that I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And I gave unto the house of the Father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel. Right? God's asking some rhetorical questions here. Is this not what I did while you were still people in bondage in Egypt? Remember, Aaron, Moses' brother, I took him and I said, this is going to be my priest. And not only that, but I provided for them through the burnt offerings. Wherefore, he says in verse 29, kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I've commanded in my habitation. Is it, you're, you're taking it for granted. You're taking advantage of the privilege you've been given. And it continues on and he says, it is a very condemning statement, that honorest thy sons above me. To make, to make yourselves, yourselves fat with the chiefest of all of the offerings of Israel, my people. Eli is condemned because he loves his sons more than he loves God, because he's willing to take advantage of the people. He's willing to let his sons take advantage of the people rather than deal with their sinfulness. Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Just as he's saying to, to Israel, just as he's saying to the false priests in Israel, because of your rejection of knowledge, because of your rejection of me, I will reject you. Eli, because you have loved others before me, even though they're, just, they're your family, even though you, you condone that, I will now reject your family. Behold, verse 31, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall be no, there shall not be an old man in thine house. Right? Judgment is coming to the house of Eli. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation and all the wealth that God shall give Israel and there shall be an old, not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart, and all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. And this shall be a sign. So he proclaims judgment against the people. He proclaims judgment against the Levites, against the house of the priests. And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall both die of them. And remember, as you study through and you see all of this happening, we remember that the Ark of God is taken. We remember that Hophni and Phinehas are there, that the word is brought to Eli. That not only is the Ark of God taken, but his two sons are dead. And when and he hears that his two sons are dead, and that's one thing, but now the Ark of God is, gone, is, is taken, and he laments. 
He says, the glory has depart departed. And remember, they named the grandkid Ichabod. That's what it means. No glory. So Ichabod Crane, you know, in that whole Sleepy Hollow story, I mean, he's a pretty homely guy. No glory. There's, <laughs> that's what it means. That's why he's depicted the way he is. That's what Ichabod means. They named the kid to memorialize just as Hosea was commanded to name his kids to memorialize the hearts of where the people were. There's no glory in Israel now, and he falls over, and he breaks, and he, and he dies. I mean, that's, that's it. Eli's done. His household is concluded. There are no old men left. Continues on, verse 35. And I will raise up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and to crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, put me, I pray thee, in one of the priest's office that I may eat a piece of bread. There's going to be some famine in the land. There's going to be, but, but God is going to establish a priesthood, obviously from, that, from the tribe of Levi, just as he's promised, a faithful priest and a faithful priesthood. These Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, made merchandise of the people. They abused the authority that they were given. And they took advantage of it. They used it so that, that they might prey upon the desire of the people to walk in relationship with God. Just as these false priests are doing in Hosea's day. This is not new, and it hasn't been, and this was not the last time that this has happened. Throughout history, we see those who will take advantage and make merchandise of the people, capitalizing on their desire to walk rightly with God. Whether it's the Catholic Church in the days of the Crusades, selling indulgences, lining their own pockets, promising the people absolution, forgiveness of sin, they'll only buy enough. Or whether it's those on television today who would say, mail in your money, send us your, your, your seed of faith, whatever it might be. They're capitalizing upon the desire of people to walk rightly with God. Listen, you and I have news for those people. It's not for sale. It's not something that we offer, that we earn, that we merit. It is something that God has completely done, and he did so freely. It is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Anyone who would say, this is what you have to do, anyone say, this is what you have to pay to somehow merit favor or forgiveness with God is lying to you. Because God himself said it is a free gift that he himself has offered on our behalf. We have these godless leaders who are leading the people astray. I want to talk for just a moment as we, as we look here about the contrast, the, the godly leaders that God has prescribed. Okay? I think this is important. I think it bears discussion in context of the church. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 18.
I want to read verses three and four. Now he, he's talking about uh, the priests, the Levites from the tribe of Levi. We get all that from verse one. Uh, it says in verse two that they're not going to have any inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance. He's going to provide for them. Verse three, and this shall be the priest's due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or of the sheep, and they shall give unto the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw. I didn't take time to look up what the maw is. Maybe somebody knows, but I don't. It's the stomach, maybe. I don't know. I don't want the stomach. You guys can keep it. <laughs> I apologize. I figured somebody would ask me that. It's one that I had on a list of things to look at. I didn't get it done, so I apologize. He says, the first fruits also of thy corn and thy wine and the oil and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. For the Lord thy God has chosen him out of the tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So in Deuteronomy 18, uh, we find that God establishes the Levites as he, he calls them specifically to be his leaders, uh, the priests. Um, he's specifically provided for them. In Numbers chapter 18, we find the same thing that God has provided for uh, through for them. Numbers 18. Well, we're not going to read the whole chapter. So Numbers 18, just put it on your notes. We also find this parallel in the church today. That God has established leadership. Those within the church, as we talked about this morning briefly, as we talked about church government, um, that God provides for that church government, for those in leadership there. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, verses 17 through 18. It says, let the elders, those pastors, bishops, it's all the same thing. We talked about that briefly this morning. That rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, he's just making the case that, listen, church, if you're being provided for spiritually by the elder, you provide spiritually physically for the elder who's doing that work. That's all he's saying. He's not saying you have to. He's just saying don't prohibit it. There are those that think that teach that you shouldn't pay your pastors or those that insist that you must pay your pastors. I think that it's just providing that God himself will take care of those who are in leadership, that God himself will provide for those things, whether he does so through the tithes and offerings of the church, or whether he does so in some other means. But ultimately, it isn't wrong to pay your pastor. I don't know that it's wrong to withhold for, to not pay your pastor. Um, it would depend on the reason why you're not paying your pastor. I'll leave that for now. God's providing for his leaders. That's, that's the big point. God is providing for them. And there's also a clear standard. God has established a clear standard for the priesthood in the days of the temple and in the days of, of Hosea, that there is a standard for the priest to keep. And in the same way, he's provided a standard for the leadership of the church today. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3, God lays out in the first seven verses the qualifications, the standard of character that those men should have to lead the church, to be elders. He says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. 
Now, first off, I'm convinced that that is the first qualification, that there is some desire, that God has placed some call and desire in that person. If there's no desire, they're not qualified. Though they may meet every other qualification, and to be honest, men, we should be desiring and living in such a way that we would meet all of these qualifications. This isn't just a standard for the elders of the church. This is a standard for the leaders, period, in the body of Christ. He continues on. So desire first. A bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Now, there's a lot of discussion about whether that's one wife at a time or one wife, period. You could work that out on your own. Um, I think the circumstances play into that. Because Jesus himself addressed the hardness of heart that men may have. And the permissible, though not required, and sometimes we think of it in those terms. We think of it here as uh, adultery within the marriage, and so therefore it is required that there be a divorce. Well, that's not required. It's permissible, but it isn't the best, that it isn't the intent that God would have. So depending on the circumstance, I think that that's a, that it might be something that needs to be reviewed. Uh, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker. Uh, simply that means um, quarrelsome, you know, hot-tempered, not greedy of filthy lucre, not patient, excuse, excuse me, but patient, but patient should be patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules his own household, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, not somebody who's brand new in the faith, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. He goes on, he gives separate qualifications, though almost identical for deacons within the church. The one thing withheld from deacons is, is aptitude for teaching. So deacons, you have the same qualifications, though you may not be called upon to teach. There you go. God gives and reiterates these same standards in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. They're the same. And I realize we're not taking a lot of time. I just want to point out that God has clarified that there is a standard, and this is what it needs to be for that person to fill that role of eldership pastor, bishop, whatever the term may be used within the church. Just as the Levites had a standard, God has established a standard within his church. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 18. I want to look at verse 6. God is the one that holds the, in many respects, he holds the elders of the church to account. Now, it's not exclusively, as we were talking about this morning, there's a top-up, top-down, bottom-up, unique governmental structure within the church. We're going to talk about that more next week. But ultimately, that man is responsible and answerable before God. Just like the father is in his household, he's responsible for those that God has entrusted him with. The pastor, the elders are responsible. They're answerable before God for the flock that God has entrusted them with. He says this in verse 6, 
But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believes in me, it were better of him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, there isn't any... <laughs> That's pretty harsh. Right? If you're going to be one of these false priests that are being discussed here in Hosea, it is better for you that you have a millstone hang around your neck and you be thrown into the sea than you fall into the hands of the living God because he deals harshly with those who will lead his people astray. And I think that there is some clarification to be had and instructive insight in Jesus' words to those who are living in Hosea's day and those who today would try to make merchandise of people capitalizing on their desire to be in right relationship with God. They're being led astray. In James chapter 3, verse 1, you'll remember uh, as we studied there, he talks about those, he says, don't be many masters. And in other words, uh, does it say masters? Yes, my brother, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, there is a, and as we talked about this, and as we studied through James, there is a very high standard for what is said, what is taught, for the responsibilities laid upon those who end up in leadership, especially those who are in pastors or, or that are elders within the church. God says, listen, it's a big deal. He holds them to account directly and by every member of the church. And I would just say that if your church, the, the pastors, if our church if our, is coming to us and they're holding us to account for things that we've said or done, we need to take that seriously. We need to consider we need to be humble enough to say to, to realize that we may have stepped in it in what we said, whether it was simply a misunderstanding or we were wrong. Let the word of God come to bear on all that we say. This is what we're preaching and teaching, not our own opinions or thoughts. And sometimes those get lost and confused. The word of God needs to ring true in everything that we say. So, godly leaders, there is a standard and established leadership within the nation of Israel, for the spiritual leadership of his people, and there is in the church today, the reason that God establishes a high standard for spiritual leadership, we, we find it, we put that in verse 9. This is what it says, and there shall be, and there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. Right, we understand, we, we, we would use that turn of phrase like father, like son. In other words, the kid is like the dad. He looks like him, he acts like him, he's a spitting image. It's, it's, it's the same. That's some of the same struggles, perhaps. The people are like the priests. They're following in their footsteps. The reason that God establishes a high standard is because of the responsibility that comes with that calling, that position. And there are those who are taking advantage of that. In Matthew chapter 15, turn there with me, Matthew 15, verse 14. Jesus says, let them alone, they be blind, leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. I think there's some personal responsibility for those who are following the blind, those who are following these false priests. They're willingly rejecting God. They're willingly taking and following those who obviously don't know where they're going. 
But here God is speaking directly to the fact that these people, leave, leave them alone. They're going to reap what they sow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, the standard that God has, the reason that he establishes a high expectation for leadership within the church is because that is an example that is going to be followed. And Paul would boldly say, follow me as I follow Christ. And those of us who are in leadership within the church should be living in a way that we would be able to confidently say that. Now, there's some qualification in what Paul is saying. He understands his sinfulness. He understands he's going to fail. Don't follow me in the areas where I'm not following Christ. He's, he's first and foremost, follow Christ. Philippians chapter 3, he goes on and he expands on that topic just a little bit in Philippians 3, verse 17. He says, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. So not only does he say walk, follow me, he says follow those who are walking like me. In other words, Paul says follow us as we follow Christ. Doesn't matter who it is. There are great examples that we are surrounded by. We read about the heroes of the faith and those autobiographies and things like that that my bookshelves are lined with. And why do I read them? Because I get to see their Christ-likeness and how they live that out. It's an example for us to follow. Sometimes I feel like Apollos gets a bad rap within the church. There were those who were following Apollos, those who were who were effectively taking sides, Paul versus Apollos. We have the, the team Apollos and team Paul over here, and they're, they're at odds with each other, but they were teaching the same things. And Paul even commends Apollos. He says, listen, you guys are the ones who are making the mistake here. It's not about following Paul or following Apollos. It's about following Jesus. Paul was pro-Apollos. And Apollos was pro-Paul. They didn't have a problem with each other, but the disciples did because they got it out of whack. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And ultimately, that example should lead us to following in a pursuit of Jesus and not a pursuit of Paul. You're following your pursuit of the elders within your church to lead you to a pursuit and a following of Jesus, not a following and a pursuit of that particular pastor, which has become a problem in the church today. And I don't want to name, I do want to name names, but I'm not going to. I'll talk about it after. <laughs> there are those... Godly men who are, in my opinion, taking advantage of the people in the position that they have somehow come into in the church. And that's a problem, and they need to address it. In Hebrews chapter 13, lest we think that this all lies on the, the shoulders of the leadership of the church, we, we talk about the bottom-up and the top-down governance of the church of God. Because it takes both, 
right? We have the, the elders and, and those in charge who are there to teach and to keep pure doctrine within the ears and the hearts of the flock. And we have the flock, the, the congregation that is there to hold account the men who are teaching them. Their responsibility to do their own study. We talk about this a lot. We need to be the Bereans. We need to be those who are rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to be the experts in the Bible. Individually. In Hebrews chapter 13, there are two verses that I want to look at. Number one, in verse 7, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember them which have the rule over you. And this is all, this is all in the context of God establishing those rulers. He says, remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So we have a couple of things. Number one, we remember those that God has placed over us. So that he's put you in this church. There it is. He's put you in that church. There it is. They have the rule over you by God's ordinance. Remember them. Now, I would just say, Every pastor covets the prayers of their congregation. Because we're just people. We're, we're not anything special. Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of the conversation. So we're going to follow them. They have their example. We, we have the teaching that they're giving, but we want to consider what is their fruit at the end of their conversation. What is the fruit of their life? Are they meeting the qualifications? Are they clearly teaching the word of God or are they teaching their own opinions? There is both top up, top down, bottom up in that particular verse. And if we jump down to verse 17, it says to obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, but they watch for your souls as they that must they give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, but that is unprofitable for you. In other words, the responsibility that God has given those who are in leadership, he says, listen, submit yourselves to them. Now, now when he talks about submission, we, we tend to put that into a slave type of understanding. Right? I'm not going to ask any of you to do my laundry or to fold my socks or anything like that. That's, that's outside of the jurisdiction that I have. That's, I have a limited scope of government found in scripture for the elders of the church. But what he is saying is, listen, we submit to those who are in authority over us. Why? Because they have a responsibility. They're the ones that are giving an account. Right, Father, is this should I, you should identify with this in some respect because you are the same thing in your household. Remember those who have the rule over you. We honor our father and our, uh, and our mother because it's right before the Lord. We walk in submission to the, to the eldership of the church, to the leadership of the church, because it's right before the Lord. And we do so so that they can do it with joy. So they can do it with joy. You, you look, look at statistically, statistically the, 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 this is a terrible term. way to illustrate it in some respects, but I think it gives insight. Statistically, the number of pastors, church leadership, however that looks, that suffer from quote unquote burnout. They just can't do it anymore for whatever reason. 
It's something like 65 or 70 percent of all pastors at some point will just leave the pulpit because they're done. It's really high. And I think it stems from more than one thing. And I and and, and I, I want to own up to whatever the, the, the eldership, the leaders in that respect may have. There may be pride, there may be all kinds of things that are happening there that need to be addressed. When when your congregation comes and holds you to account for your response, for your teaching, for whatever it may be, you need to be humble enough to hear that. That's the position that God has called you to be in. But at the same time, on the other side of that, when all that you experience is attack, because you're not doing enough, because ultimately, this is really, really hard to talk about. I don't like it. This makes me very uncomfortable because I have such a supportive congregation. I don't experience this at all. But there are those out there, and this is the truth that we need. We sometimes need to be reminded of this. We are in fellowship together. And sometimes pastors and elders end up burying the entire load of everything that's happening and all the responsibility associated with it. And they just can't do it anymore. And not only that, their families sometimes are thrown into the mix and they end up having to assume roles within the church that really they ought not to be in because there's nobody else to fill the gap. And we've talked about those things here before. And I feel very supportive. And I feel very thankful for all of you. But here it is. The Bible tells us that you and I, that we need to remember those who have the rule over, this, over us. We, we do so. We submit to them. Because they watch for your souls. They look at you and we understand the role that God has given us as the under-shepherd, so to speak, the, the fill-in in Jesus' absence to help you walk in truth. That we might be better fathers, that we might be better mothers, that we might be better spouses, that we might be better uh, children, that we might be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And you see these guys that have suffered this burnout in their they're beat down and they're just distraught because they walk away from their church thinking that everybody hates them. Couldn't do anything good enough. There was never enough that they could give. And statistically, it's almost a guarantee anymore. It's, it's a very sad thing within the church. And God addresses it in his word. We have to be humble enough both directions to walk in truth. And I thank you very much. Jesus talks about, excuse me, Hosea talks about the fruits that these that are born in these false teachers. In verses 10 and 11, he says, For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Okay, so the fruits are these, false doctrine. They have false doctrine amongst them. They're, they're mixing all kinds of things. They're holding false doctrine. Number two, sexual immorality. That'll become more clear as we progress. And drunkenness, which is specifically forbidden for the priests. And ultimately what happens is all, all of these fleshly pursuits are leading them away. That's what's happening. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter six. And not only does it happen to them, this is fruit within each one of us individually. When we begin to submit ourselves 
Romans Ro- 6, right? Whatever we submit ourselves to, we become a slave and a servant out of it. And this is exactly what we're the principle that we're encountering here. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that does it does it destroys his own soul. He continues on in Proverbs chapter 20. Let's look there. Verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It's something that that, that will consume us. Now, I, I'm not, I don't think that consuming alcohol is a sin. There are those that do think it is a sin. I don't think that it is. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. Old Testament talks about it. Drunkenness is a sin. The temptation is this, that we, that any of these things, as we pursue them, will engulf us. Proverbs 23, verse 27 through 35. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lies in wait as for a prey and increases the transgressors among men. Who has woe, but who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has babblings, who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. It continues on. It, 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 it sucks you in. The pursuit of the flesh, the pursuit of the indulgence of the flesh, any of these things, whatever they may be, we get stuck in them. In Romans 13. Romans 13. Verses 11 through 14. This is an admonition for you and I as a church. And that that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We're not making provision for the flesh. We're not seeking any way that we might indulge ourselves. The, the fruit of these false priests is to lead the people to this very excess. Why? Because the conscience over here that God has put within us that tells us this is right and this is wrong is there condemning. It's doing its job. And on the other side, we have over here lining our pockets with all of the indulgences that we get to purchase, with all of the sacrifices that are going to be made on our behalf. It's a vicious cycle, and it's a really profitable venture. That these people feel as if we have to do these things. They're being taught the false doctrine that you have to purchase and merit and earn your salvation. And they're stuck in bondage to those works. And we have those that are teaching them, make every provision for your flesh. Not only that, but indulge and, and, and use it as a mechanism of worship, worship which is what we have happening, as we're going to find. In verse 12. Verse 9 is ultimately commentary on verses 12 through 15. He says, as the 
like the people, like the priests. They're going to do what the priests are doing. They're going to follow after them. That's why God establishes that high standard for those who are in leadership in the church. The people are doing the same things. He says they seek counsel their stocks. You know what the word stock means? It means their piece of wood. They're worshiping their idols. They're seeking counsel there, not of the Lord. They're worshiping these idols. They turn their staff, declares it unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms has caught the, caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their God. Okay, Here in this verse, in verse 12, whoredom is idolatry. It's a metaphor. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 17, 1 through 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons and to the children of Israel, and say, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, What man soever there shall be of the house of Israel that kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or that kills it out of the camp, and brings it not to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, behold, shall be imputed unto that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. In other words, anyone, anywhere that engages in sacrifice is answerable for that sacrifice. If it isn't specifically for the Lord, then it is specifically against the Lord. And he goes on and he expounds upon that through the next several verses. doesn't matter if you're part of Israel, if you're just living there in Israel, but you're not a Jew, doesn't doesn't matter if it's inside the camp or outside the camp. There is a responsibility to bring that before the Lord. In Romans chapter 1, this is commentary on exactly what is happening here in the hearts of these people. Romans chapter 1, verses 23 and 25. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man into birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. In other words, they're going to worship the creation, those things that God has made, as if they were God rather than worshiping God himself. And they've changed in verse 25, the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It happened in the garden. It happened in Hosea's day. And it continues to happen today. It's the fruits of false teachings. It's the fruits of the lack of knowledge of who God is. Verse 13, we continue on. We see the fruits of these false priests in the people. They're sacrificed upon the tops of the mountains, and they burn incense upon the hills and under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good, because it's shady. Therefore, your daughter shall commit whoredom, and your spouses shall commit adultery. In this verse, whoredom is not metaphorical. You have ritualistic prostitution happening. You have all of those things that are going on. We have the immorality that is growing within Israel. It's a rejection of God, and it equals, and it manifests itself in the pursuit of sinful excess. And God tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And he's making that point very clear to the nation of Israel. For so long, for generations now, you've sown to the flesh, and you're going to reap corruption, destruction as a result of it. 
And the motivating force behind all of that is God's love for his people. Don't be deceived. We're not going to get away with it. Verse 14, he tells them, I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery, for themselves are separated with whores and they sacrifice with whoredoms. Therefore, the people that does not understand shall fall. Right? There, is, there is no excuse, as it were, before God. We're not getting away with it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8 tells us that if we receive that those who are not gods, do not receive his correction. It declares us to be bastards, to be fatherless in respect to our relationship with God. The rest of that chapter goes on to tell us and explain to you and I that the reason we receive correction, the reason God would engage with the nation of Israel at this level is because of his love and concern for them, because of his desire to correct them and bring them back to himself, just as he would do with you and with me. In Revelation chapter 20, we read about what is called the great white throne judgment. This is the final judgment. And I want you, as we read these verses 11 through 15, I want you to see who is judged and who is doing the judging. Beginning in verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I want you to just pause right there. <laughs> There's nowhere you can hide. We're not going to get away with it. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. All right, so here is everyone, dead and alive, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So we have this judgment that is it is God sitting on this throne, and he says, listen, every single person, whether you're dead or whether you're alive, whether you're in the sea, whether you're even in hell, you're going to be judged. Everyone stands before God. No one escapes this final judgment. And it says that everyone is judged according to, the, to their works. I'm convinced that there is some answering that you and I as believers are going to give in regard to why we did things and how we did things. Now, I realize that that is a bold statement, and I may be wrong. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about answering for the way we conducted ourselves, whether we built with hay, wooden stubble, or whether we built with those things that are going to endure the fire, that trial process. We're not talking about salvation. And that becomes clear when we get to verse 15. He says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But if we're dead, if we are in hell, then we're cast into the lake of fire. That is the ultimate destination for everyone who has rejected Christ. And I know that because verse 15 says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your name is put in the book of life. That's where it gets recorded. There it is. That's the, the name of every person who is a member of the body of Christ, who has been born again by faith in Jesus. 
And the first thing that happens is if you're, you're, when, when you die for you and I as believers, and we understand this because this is what Paul said. It's like they do this quick check. Oh yeah, you're in the book of life. Here it is. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And we're also given eternal life. That's why I say it may be wrong because we are, are we dead physically and that's what's being discussed or is it dead and then we're bound and destined for hell? I, I, don't, I don't know yet. I will know. Currently studying. Okay. All that to say this, listen, there's two books, the books of all the stuff that have been done. And I know that's applicable in some respects to believers because Paul talks about it. Right? We, we suffer loss for those things that are how we wouldn't stumble because they burn up. The other things we receive a reward for. So I think there is some account given on our behalf at this particular judgment about the way we lived our, our lives. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with reward. But everyone is judged. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived stands before the judgment seat of God and gives an account of the things that were done. And as Jesus would say, even of every idle word that we've ever spoken, which means I'm going to probably stop talking tomorrow because <laughs> I say a lot of things that I probably ought not to say. There's no getting away with it. Now, I want to, I want to go back up. I want to back up. So, so, like I said, it looks like there's this whole section that we're skipping, but we talked about it. We talked about the fruits of the priests are the same as the fruits of the people. And there is consequence and there is judgment associated with those. Nobody's getting away with it. Ultimately, the immediate consequence is their dispersal into Assyria. And there is a greater consequence to be talked about. As we, talk, as we introduce the book of Hosea, we talk about this gospel thread throughout it. And it comes to bear here again. But I want to back, back up to, to verse 10. It says that the, the, not only the priests, but I'm convinced even the people, says that they have left off, they have stopped taking heed to the Lord. That word heed, give heed to the Lord, it means that they are not guarding or watching. In other words, there is no purpose or intent within them to walk in obedience, to walk in trust of God. And I think in some respects this falls this is commentary on the world today. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. I want to illustrate this from the life of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we'll remember the story of Moses. He was put in the basket when he was born, found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised as Pharaoh's grandson. I mean, he's got a pretty good life. He's highly educated. He's pretty well-to-do, I would imagine, being the grandson of Pharaoh. He's in a pretty good position. The temptation for Moses would be to continue to indulge in that lifestyle, to continue to be wherever he was for that moment, to reap what he could reap rather than take that, as we talked about last week, that Esther moment for such a time as this. Because he was put in that position for such a time as this. Hebrews chapter 11, let's begin in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
had a definite change of heart based, even though he knew that that was going to be a hard circumstance for him by faith. He trusted God more than he loved the position and the lifestyle that he led by faith. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches in the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. What we see here in the life of Moses is a purpose to walk in the Lord. The temptation, as I said, is for him to enjoy the benefits and the fruits of the lifestyle that he has been provided, rather than to accept the Esther moment in his life, realizing that this is the purpose for which God has brought me to this position. And I will walk in obedience to the Lord. By faith, he chose to trust the Lord. By faith, he chose to leave behind all those things. By faith, he chose not to indulge himself, but to walk in obedience. He had purpose and he had intent. When we talk about uh, not very long ago, as we were studying uh, one of those presentations that I made about choosing this day whom we're going to serve. We, we purpose and we, we before determine that this, this is, is how we will respond to the things that come our way. We choose to walk in faith before we ever have to make the faith decision. That I will trust God, that I will choose to obey him no matter what may come my way. And I do so before whatever is coming does come. A predetermined plan of action. In Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to close here, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you walk henceforth, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's where we came from. And the temptation is to go back to it. The next verse gives us some insight, but you have not so learned Christ. That is when we're instructed in the word of God. We have to have purpose and intent that we will walk as Christ walked. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, we walk the way that God wants us to walk, that we purpose and that we have the intent to walk in obedience to God in newness of life. 
Are we going to do so perfectly? Unfortunately, no. But that doesn't change the fact that we still have the purpose and the intent to do it. That we engage in it, that we do so no matter what may come our way. And I realize that in many respects, it's a very condemning purpose and intent to have. As I stand here and I think to myself, boy, there's a lot of things that I purposed and intended to do, and then it got hard and I just gave up. And we've all been there. But you know what? Today's a new day. His mercies are new today. I can walk in purpose and intent and I can pick right up where I left off. And so can you. Our failures don't define us. We are defined by the declaration of God to be just and holy. He has called us righteous, and we are. Walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. And God, I thank you for the work of your spirit in each one of us. Praise you, Lord, that you have orchestrated and established your church in such a way that it has leadership and that you have established clear and defined standards for that leadership. And Lord, for your body, that Father, as we pursue you, as we walk with purpose and the intent, predetermined, Lord, that we will respond in obedience and faith. Lord, may we be the witness to the world around us that you have intended us to be. Father, may you be glorified and honored in the way that we conduct ourselves, that they may see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And I pray that by your grace, we would accomplish these things that we now pray, because we can only do it by your grace. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not righteous and holy enough within ourselves. But Lord, we do trust that you have declared us to be so, that you have justified us, and clothe this in the righteousness of your son by faith. We rejoice in that fact and in that truth. We give thanks. We pray, Lord, and now we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.